All right, well, it's good to see you guys. Uh, for any of you who I don't know, my name is uh, Aaron. I'm also one of the pastors here. I'm really glad to see you tonight. Uh, as a church, we are going through the Gospel of Mark together. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 5. We'll be studying there today. We're going to look at the story of Jesus and his encounter with the demonized man. And so we're really looking at the subject today of Jesus versus demons, but my hope and my intention today is that we would not walk away knowing a whole lot about demons. My hope and my intention for today is that we'd walk away worshiping our great Savior, Jesus. Amen? And so that's the purpose, that's the goal, that's where we're going. What I'd like to do is I'd like to read straight through the passage. We're in chapter 5, starting in verse 1. I'll read straight through it. I'll invite you to read along with me, and then we'll pray, and we'll go back and start to unpack what it is that God has for us tonight. So... Read along with me if you would. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces." No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out, entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you give us your word. We thank you that you give us your word to teach us and instruct us. And God, each and every time that we gather together like this, we open your word. We open the scriptures to see what it is you want to teach us. And so I pray today that you would give us soft hearts, receptive hearts, eyes to see and ears to hear and, and hearts that want to understand the truth of your word. And God, I specifically pray as we're looking today at this idea of uh, spiritual warfare and the enemy and Satan and demons, God, I pray 
that you would keep us safe from the evil one, that we would not be uh, even distracted right now during this time, or that the word of God that you want to implant into our hearts would not be uh, plucked away, as it says in, in Mark chapter 4. God, I pray that you would give us uh, a clear understanding of what it is you want to teach us today, and may we all grow closer to Jesus, in whose name we pray. And everybody said, amen. In 1940, on Sunday, July 14th, we know the exact Sunday, one of my favorite authors, a man named C.S. Lewis, was sitting in church when an idea popped into his head. Apparently, he wasn't paying attention to the sermon very closely. An idea popped into his head for a book, and we know the exact Sunday because he wrote a letter to his brother a few weeks later, and he wrote these words. He said, I was struck by the idea for a book, which I think might be both useful and entertaining. It would be called As One Devil to Another and would consist of letters from an elderly retired devil to a young devil who has just started work on his first patient. The idea would be to give all of the psychology of temptation from the other point of view. And indeed, within a short period of time, a year and a half or two, C.S. Lewis had indeed written his famous, now classic work, The Screwtape Letters. Uh, quick show of hands, how many of you have read The Screwtape Letters at some point? That's, that's quite a few of us. I know uh, some people I talked to, it was actually required reading in their English class growing up. It's such a, uh, a well-established literary work. In that book, C.S. Lewis gives us a picture. It's, it's obviously not inspired scripture, but it's very informative. It gives us a picture of what it might be like for the enemy to work on distracting and, and keeping a follower of Jesus from enjoying Jesus and from experiencing fruitfulness in ministry. It's a very fascinating and insightful work. If you've never read it, I would highly recommend it to you. In the preface to that book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes probably the most often quoted words from that book. He writes in the preface this a uh, little bit of insight that I think is very helpful for us as we're diving in here today. It says this, In the preface to the Screwtape Letters, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors, and they hail a materialist, or a magician with the same delight. I think that's an interesting setup from C.S. Lewis, and I think, he's, I think he's right on. That sometimes we disbelieve in the existence of Satan and demons, or feel an unhealthy attraction. And as I was thinking through our culture, just doing research and study and thinking about our culture, it seems to me that our culture is a little bit manic, that our culture somehow simultaneously tries to do both, Okay. Uh, we come from, the United States of America was birthed out of rationalistic enlightenment thinking. And the, the basic premise of the enlightenment was we as human beings can figure out everything there is to know through science. And so as a culture, generally speaking, we believe that we can know everything just through scientific study and things like demons and spiritual uh, matters uh, are, are relics left over from a bygone age. And yet at the same time, our culture has an incredible fascination 
with the spiritual realm, dark spirits in particular. How do I know this? This last week, uh, I, I decided I wanted to watch a movie. And I know that might not sound profound to most of you, but I don't actually watch a lot of movies, uh, at least not ones that don't have you know, singing animals or princesses of some sort, because I have four daughters at home, and so you can pray for me. But I decided I want to watch a, I watch a real grown-up movie with like real people and talking and everything. And so I got on Netflix, and, and by the way, if you don't know this, there aren't actually any movies on Netflix. You just scroll through it for two hours and then go to bed. That's what you do with Netflix, right? So I got on Netflix, I started looking through, and I found a category, there was a subcategory of movies that I didn't even know existed, and it was called Supernatural Thrillers. This whole category of movies that I didn't even realize was out there, and so it was some of your standard you know, vampire, well, werewolf, you know, zombie fare. But then there was also the possession or the awakening or witches and ghosts and demons and demon-possessed people and demon-possessed, I don't know, dolls. I was looking for like maybe some demon-possessed furniture or something. I didn't know what was all in there. This whole genre opened up to me. And what was so fascinating to me, there's literally hundreds of movies in this supernatural thriller category. And what I realized realize is our culture is essentially trying to have it both ways. We want to hold on to the enlightenment premise that we believe in science and everything can be explained through rationalistic means and yet tongue in cheek say like, oh yeah, yeah, there's all these demons, all these spirits, but I don't really believe it. Ha ha ha. It's just a movie. But we're fascinated. Things like the twilight phenomenon with millions and millions of books selling and millions and millions of movie tickets selling are be is because our culture, I think deep down, understands that there are spiritual forces above and beyond just uh, what we see in science and through rationalistic means. And I would even say that people in our culture are unwilling to look at, when we see real true evil, sometimes they're unwilling to ascribe those works to Satan, those works to evil. I, I, would, I would say that, um, sure, I, I'm sympathetic to that because we humans are capable of a lot of evil ourselves. However, how do you account for, just this weekend, the news report that militant jihadists have abducted 21 Christians in the Middle East and have beheaded them publicly and recorded on video. That is evil, okay? That is evil. And while human beings are capable of some incredible evil, I believe that the scriptures teach us that there are spiritual forces behind much of what we experience as evil in the world. And so I invite you into this place where the scripture teaches us uh, this, this place of balance that C.S. Lewis would speak of, not a disbelief in demons. So maybe some of you might be more on the disbelieving in dark spiritual forces. Some of you might be in the category of an unhealthy interest in dark spiritual forces and you are um, overly interested in them. And I would invite you to look at Jesus today the one who conquers over Satan and demons, the one who conquers over the forces of evil. That's our point and that's our goal for today. Before we really dive into the passage, however, I would like to take a few minutes and do a little bit of biblical and theological overview so that when we come to the scripture, we're all looking with the same set of eyes. So if we would uh, give me just a few minutes to do that, let's look at some various theological aspects. The first one I want to look at is the various names of Satan, okay? If you're a note taker, this is your section. You're going to love this. Go ahead and throw that first slide up, please. The various names of Satan. We see, first of all, Satan. This word is hashatan in the Old Testament Hebrew. It's also transliterated into satanos in the New Testament. We find this word in both Testaments. And it simply means the accuser or the adversary, the one who goes against you. If you want a, if you want a category or a, a, 
maybe a parallel, that would be a better word to use. If you want a parallel, I mean this sincerely, if you want to think of a parallel for Satan, think of the words prosecuting attorney, okay? If there are any lawyers here, we love you. Praise God, you're at church. That's amazing. Uh, but <laughs> I'm just kidding, of course. The idea of Satan being a prosecuting attorney is something that we actually see very clearly in the pages of the Old Testament, that his job, his role is to go before God in an accusatory fashion to say they are guilty. That's what the name Satan means, is the accuser. In the New Testament, we see the word devil, diabolos, essentially, and it similarly means the accuser, or it also can mean the slanderer, one who uses their words to tear down. Number three, I put this in there, even though it only appears one time, many of you would have uh, thought of it if I didn't put it up there, is the, the name Lucifer, okay? Interesting thing about Lucifer, Lucifer is a Latin word. It's not part of any of the original Greek languages. It comes out of the Latin translations of the Bible in the Middle Ages, and it simply is a Latin word that means morning star. There's a passage in Isaiah that speaks of Satan, I believe, using the term the morning star, meaning the brightest one, the one who shines most brightly. And so some of you have heard that Lucifer was maybe the name of Satan before he fell. That would have been his name in heaven. And I don't believe that that's what the scripture teaches. <clears throat> it's not um, a complete blasphemy or heresy, but it's not perhaps the most accurate way to look at that. It's simply one of the other names or references that are used for Satan. Fourth one is obvious. It's the serpent or the snake or the dragon. From the earliest pages of the Old Testament to the last pages of the New Testament, we see this word snake or serpent or dragon used. Why? Because snakes are creepy. Do I get any men from anybody on that? Okay. And the idea that Satan is uh, to be avoided and even to be feared or respected in that way. So we see from Genesis 3 all the way through Revelation 20 that he is referred to as the serpent or the dragon. Number five, this one's interesting. Satan is often referred to as the ruler or the prince or the authority or even the God, lowercase g, God, of the world or of the air. Meaning, Satan has set himself up as a ruler, as a prince, as an authority, in opposition of God's true and righteous authority. God is the king of the universe, and Satan has set himself up and said, no, I want to be king. And so various biblical writers would say, yes, he's the ruler of this age. He's the, the god of this age. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the authority of this world. And then lastly, number six, one that we see come up a few times in the New Testament is Beelzebul, or translated, that literally means the Lord of the Flies. And the idea there is, what do flies gather around? Trash, excrement, rotten food, the music of Nickelback. I don't know, right? Like, <laughs> that was not in my notes. I'll we'll edit that out later, sorry. Um, but the idea that Flies congregate around that which is disgusting and that which is gross. And so when you think of the enemy, you think of Satan. He is foul. He is unclean. So those are some various names of Satan. So when you read the Bible and you see all of these different ways that the enemy is referred to, you can understand they're all talking about the same spiritual being, Satan, the leader of a rebellious group of angels. That takes me to my next slide in which we look at a few uh, just basic truths about Satan and demons. First of all, it's this. They are created and they are fallen angels. The Bible is clear that everything that is not God was created by God, and that includes angels. And Satan and demons were originally angels who worshiped God, and at some point there was a rebellion, and Satan, Revelation would teach, took about a third of the angels with him. 
So he rebelled against God saying, I want to be like God. We get that from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And I will just tell you this. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, they're prophetic works that are actually speaking about an earthly king. But the language is so grand and the language is so um, over the top and hyperbolic that many pastors, Bible teachers, commentators believe that those passages are indeed speaking about the fall of Satan, that he had pride in his heart. Some would disagree. If you disagree, that's totally okay. My position is that yes, those two passages are speaking about Satan and that he had pride in his heart, he wanted to ascend to the throne of God, and, and then he was cast out of heaven because of his rebellion. I also want you to understand that when we say a created fallen angel, we do not mean that he is in any way, shape, or form God's equal. God alone is God. Satan is a rebellious angel who thinks that he should have the role of God. So some of you who are maybe familiar with Eastern religions or the concept of yin and yang, where there's two equal and opposite light and dark forces opposing one another, that is not what the Bible teaches about God and Satan. The Bible teaches that Satan is inferior to God in every way, and one day he will be destroyed forever, and that God is only light, and in him there is no darkness whatsoever. The second thing I want you to understand about Satan and demons is that Jesus tells us that their mission statement... Pastor Shane was just talking about our church's mission statement. Well, Satan has a mission statement too, and it's to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus tells us that himself in John chapter 10. He says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. And the third thing I want you to know about Satan and demons is this. Hell is not their home, it's their destiny. Some of you have bought into the pop culture idea that Satan is like hanging out in hell. There's, you know, ACDC music blasting, drinking light beer. And then every once in a while, some poor soul gets cast into hell and Satan and his devils have a real fun time roasting them and poking them with pitchforks. No, Jesus says that hell was prepared for Satan and his demons and it is their ultimate destruction one day. They will spend eternity in hell paying for their rebellion against God. So, Satan is not in charge of hell in any way, shape, or form. Jesus is, and it's for Satan. And Jesus warns us for any who follow him and don't believe in the gospel of Jesus. So are you guys tracking with me? Are you seeing this, this information? Is this, is this helpful for you? Okay, good, because I've got a whole bunch more. Let's keep going. Um, I want you to see his methods and his schemes. I want you to be wise to the tactics that Satan uses in his resistance to God. The first one is just simply opposition. He is opposed to God. He is opposed to God's people. So, for example, in Mark 4, the parable of the, the farmer sowing the seeds, we read that a few weeks ago, says that Satan comes like a bird and plucks up the seeds and takes it away so that people won't hear the gospel. And in 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about their ministry and that Satan is coming and opposing them and, and standing in their way. So he's opposition. If you want to think of maybe, um, uh, there's no toddlers in the room, so I can pick on them, right? Like a toddler who's just obstinate and says no to everything, right? Some of you have ever had toddlers, or is that just mine, okay? You, you know, you, when, when, when you say up, they say down. When you say left, they say right. Because Satan's kind of like that. God says light, he says dark. God says good, he says evil. Satan is oppositional. Number two, deception. If you're taking notes and you have a highlighter or a way to circle or highlight or underline this one, please do, because this is the number one method and scheme that the enemy uses in his opposition of God through deception. 
Jesus tells us in John chapter 8, he was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Some translations would say he speaks his native tongue for he is a liar and the father of lies. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, he's talking about false teachers. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So speaking of unbelievers, sorry, saying that the enemy has lied to them and blinded their minds so they can't see how good God is. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, here's where Paul is speaking of false teachers. He says, it's no wonder that they pretend to be Christians, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan's a liar, and he's a deceiver. And he takes the truth of God's word and he twists it so that he can oppose God. His third method, his third scheme is that of temptation, okay? This one is obvious. Even those who are not particularly familiar with the Bible or particular, uh, particularly familiar with the scriptures would know that Satan is a tempter. Interesting point. In my study this week, doing a search on temptation, come to find out there are, there are very few verses that actually speak about Satan tempting us. Most of the verses that talk about temptation talk about the world tempting us or just our own hearts being tempted just within ourselves. So just a caution before you drop the devil made me do it card too quickly. Uh, just beware. So we are often tempted not by Satan and demons. We're just tempted by the, our flesh and by the world. But it is one of his schemes. Number four is accusation, okay? If I had a second most important one, this would be the second most important one. A few weeks ago, I did one of these kind of lists like that, and I got home, and my wife said, you said that four of them were the most important. Which one was it? And I said, oh, okay, well, I'll try to do better about that. Accusation. Remember when I said that Satan is like a prosecuting attorney where he goes before God with an accusing speech, with an accusing tongue saying, this person is guilty, this person is sinful, this person stands condemned before you, a holy and a righteous God, which is, which is what we see in Zechariah chapter 3. It shows a picture of uh, this man, the high priest, and Satan standing before God, and Satan is bringing charges the way that a prosecuting attorney would. And church, this is why the words of Romans 8.1 are so incredibly important to us, because it says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Meaning, you go before God, the holy and righteous judge. God slams the gavel down and says, not guilty on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If you are a Christian, you are not guilty. You are not condemned. Satan can rage all day long, but he is toast. That's good news, amen? I think of the, uh, the, the words of a hymn that I, I just recently learned this last year. It says, I hear the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. I love those words. Because even though Satan's method is accusation, the blood of Christ is what is our freedom and lack of condemnation. But that doesn't stop Satan from trying. He still tries to accuse. Number five is harassment. We see a story in, in 2 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul is talking about how a messenger from Satan came to harass him, to take advantage of him. We don't know exactly what that harassment was, but we know that it was some sort of uh, just constant source of discouragement and even frustration for the Apostle Paul. And I would say that the enemy uses harassment a lot to take advantage of our humanity and our weakness, the enemy does not have a physical body like you and I do. The enemy does not need to sleep. The enemy does not need to eat. 
And he will take advantage of our humanity and our weakness many times in order to get, to get under our skin and to cause us to follow him into sin. Let me, let me ask this question. How many of you have ever been hungry or tired after a long week and all of a sudden you found yourself drawn towards something sinful? Okay? It's okay. This is a safe place. You can raise your hand. This is what the enemy does. He takes advantage of our weakness and our humanity through harassment and just constant badgering. I have a friend who uh, was served in the military for years in intelligence, and he would talk about the ways that they would just wear guys down just through, uh, you know, constant harassment, not even, you know, torture as we would define it, but just through harassment. Very interesting to hear him talk about just the limits of our humanity. Number six, destruction. Wherever there's death and destruction and mayhem, you know that the enemy is far behind. Hebrews 2 talks about him holding the power of death. And then number seven is, yes, in some cases, demonization. Meaning a spirit in some way, shape, or form is controlling the thoughts, behaviors, and actions of someone. And, and you'll notice here on the slide I, I, I put in parentheses, not demon possession per se. I believe that demon possession as it has entered into the English language is not the most helpful translation of the words in the Greek. In the Greek, it simply is demonized. This man was demonized. And certain translations use the word of possession. I think it's unhelpful for this one reason. Because if you are a Christian... You are owned and possessed by none other than Jesus Christ himself. Amen? If you are a Christian, you belong to Jesus. You are possessed by Jesus. However, all who read the scriptures would say that there are times where Satan will indeed oppose, deceive, tempt, accuse, harass, and try to destroy the lives of Christians. And so to what level of influence does he have? And we could spend a lot of time debating about this. I just want the Christians to know this. You're possessed by Jesus. You're owned by Jesus even if the enemy is trying to attack you. And I would say this last week, I personally had a really good reminder that I need to be praying against the enemy. You know, that's, what, that's one of the parts of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'll say this, in, in the month of January, for me, coming out of the new year, has been an incredibly joyful month. I have had a really enjoyable month. Um, I think some of it is just the contrast with how terrible 2014 was for me. Um, some of you will say amen to that, right? Rough year. Coming out felt, oh, this is great. New church, church replant, love my, my, my friends, love my church family, love my fellow elders. It's really, really good. And then settling into February, found myself uh, maybe kind of being a little grumpier than I wanted to. and found myself... Uh, fighting with my wife a little bit more and found myself um, arguing with my kids and my kids were misbehaving and then there was sickness and we were all tired. And, and just this last Sunday, I went home after preaching and went home and started talking to my wife like, hey, what's going on? It feels like we're in a bit of a funk. Like January was this great month. Why is February uh, being so frustrated? My wife looks at me with the wisdom and insight that only a wife has and she goes, I think it might be spiritual attack. Oh, well, of course. We're trying to plant a church. We're trying to tell a lot of people about Jesus. We're trying to see disciples made in the north end of Seattle. Amen? It should not be surprising to us that the enemy would want to oppose that. If, in fact, if we weren't doing anything, then it would, we should expect easy sailing, right? Because the enemy likes to oppose the work that God is doing. So I talked with my fellow elders, found out that, yes, they themselves are experiencing uh, some spiritual warfare as well. And so it's been a good reminder for me and my family, as well as for us as elders, to be praying against the enemy. And so I just invite you. I invite you into that same space. Will you be praying this week against the enemy and against what he wants to do? Because we want to see Jesus do what he wants to do in and through our church. Amen? 
So that was the 30-minute introduction. Let's get to the text here now. Picking back up in verse 1, I want you to see, first of all, Satan's power. So they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the uh, Gerasenes. If you have your Bibles, you'll notice a little footnote. Down below it says, some manuscripts, Gergesenes, some Gadarenes. Basically, here's the idea. This is a region called the Decapolis, 10 cities. You guys know how in the Middle East today, there's a lot of areas that are contested. People fight over them. They don't know what they're called. They don't know who owns it. It was pretty much the same back then as well. And so this area that Jesus was going to, there's contesting information about who was in charge and what the cities were called. But here's the point. It was not a Jewish area. It was not a Jewish area. First of all, first clue, pig farmers, okay? Pigs are unclean animals according to the Old Testament law. So Jews, good, respectable Jews, would not be uh, taking care of pigs. So they came to the other side. Last week we saw that they were in the boat going through the storm. They made it through and they come to the other side. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. That's also not kosher for any of you who are paying attention to the Old Testament law. That is not, uh, there, there is no reason why a good kosher Jewish guy like Jesus should be hanging out on the wrong side of the train tracks in the tombs with the crazy demon guy. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the shackles, he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the, minute, on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Luke, in his gospel, he gives us some more information that's not exactly present here in Mark. Luke says that he's also naked. So it's not just that he's cutting himself, running around in the tombs and screaming. He's naked, so you're welcome. The second thing that we see from Matthew's account is that there's actually a second guy. There's a second demoniac. There are two. Only one is the one that Jesus interacted with and was healed of the demons, but there's actually a second guy. So there's actually uh, becoming a little community of uh, homeless, naked, screaming demon guys hanging out in the tombs. So there's a, there's a little community of them here in the region of the Decapolis. I want you to see four things from this first section here, the, the, the work of Satan, okay? This is how you know that the devil is at work. Four key indicators, four key things for you to see that the enemy is at work. First one is simply isolation, Notice how the man is living alone away from the people. If you remember when we first did the read-through, Jesus instructs him to go back to his family and to go back to his friends and tell them what Jesus had done. So we know that he has family. We know that he has friends, but he's now living by himself in the tombs. And just in case you're wondering about Matthew, no, the second demon guy doesn't count. It's not like they were getting together on Tuesday nights for Bible study and fellowship. They just were living in isolation. And I would tell you that the enemy loves to get people isolated. I would tell you that the enemy loves it even more when you get yourselves isolated. Makes his job easier. The enemy does some of his finest work when we are in isolation. Listen, God is Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That means with, within who God is, is community and relationship. The Bible says that you and I were created in the image of God, which means we were made for relationship as well. God said it is not good for the man to be alone. 
And because Satan hates God, he hates the image of God, which means he hates community and relationship and fellowship. And he tries to isolate and drive a wedge between people wherever he can. And so I tell you, it is incredibly important that you are in regular relationship with other Christian brothers and sisters. If you are a Christian, you need that constant source of fellowship, okay? Coming to a church service like this. I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm really thankful for podcasts and videos and blogs and all of that, but it does not replace the gathering together of God's people, amen? Secondly, I would say you need to be in, in some form of community, whether that's a community group or, or whatever that looks like. You need to be in relationship with other Christians. And I would even say this. Some of you have been in a community group for a long time, but you're still living in isolation because you have never opened up and shared your heart with your other brothers and sisters. Don't be in isolation. Don't set yourself up for the attack of the enemy. Don't participate in the work of the enemy. Be known. Does it take work? Yeah. But... Do those costs outweigh the dangers? By a mile. Anyone who's ever walked through significant times of difficulty and distress would tell you how much more difficult it is doing it alone. You need God's people. The second thing I want you to see here is that the devil is at work when you see wrong thinking. Now, granted, this is a pretty extreme case, right? This demoniac, this demonized man, his mind is not working. His mind is not thinking clearly. But I would tell you that even though it may not be quite as dramatic for you and for me, the enemy still operates in the same way. He attacks the thinking of people so that their minds are clouded and their minds are darkened. Remember what I said about Satan being a deceiver and a liar? That he masquerades as an angel of light? That's still his, his MO. That's still how he works. When, when I say the words spiritual warfare, or let me use this word, when I say, oh, that's demonic, I know that at least a few of you, probably most of you, had some sort of image of something fantastic. I was joking with the band that when I'm done with the sermon, I'm going to do an exorcism on one of them just at random, right? Like you think of the extraordinary demonic. You think of people levitating or vomiting or head spinning around or whatever Hollywood ideas that we've gotten from various possession movies over the years. But let me tell you this. The most demonic thing is when people think wrong thoughts about God and about themselves and about the world. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes spiritual warfare in 2 Corinthians 10. I didn't put this up on the slide, so if you're taking notes, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. This is what the Apostle Paul says. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Okay, so we have this divine warfare, spiritual warfare. What are these strongholds? What does it look like? Paul, tell us. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Do you see what Paul says? Spiritual warfare, far from being the, the dramatized Hollywood version of what you most often see. And it, it can be. Obviously, we're reading a fairly dramatic passage right here. But what the Apostle Paul is telling us is that for the vast majority of the time, the most spiritual warfare you're going to engage in is people thinking wrong thoughts about God and about themselves. Any lofty opinion that says, no, God, I know better than you. 
Do you know what I see probably the most in, in, in my time as a pastor is meeting with people? Meeting with people who are Christians. They know that Jesus is the Savior. They know that he died on the cross for their sins. They know that he raised again on the third day. They know that forgiveness is found in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And yet they will look at me or look at others and say, I can't possibly be a Christian. How could God love me? How could God have saved me? Church, I want to tell you that that is demonic. That's a demonic thought for a Christian to lack assurance of their salvation and to doubt that they are really loved by God the Father, to doubt that Romans 8.1 is true, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Church, that is demonic. And I invite you as you minister to others, as you love other Christian brothers and sisters, when you see people thinking those sorts of thoughts, you can rightly call it what it is. It is demonic. Because it's a lie. It's a lofty opinion that says, you know what, God? I know that you say you love me. I know that you say you forgive me, but I just can't forgive myself. That's demonic. The third thing is the false strength. The demoniac is... is a, <laughs> Listen, I, I read the same passage too. I understand he's breaking chains and throwing people around like ragdolls. Okay, so he had some strength. But we know it's a false strength because when Jesus shows up on the scene... He's done. He's done. The enemy loves to make you and I think that we have more strength than we actually do. The enemy loves to get us to forget that we are indeed weak and vulnerable and ultimately dependent upon Jesus. So he loves to get us thinking that we have more strength than we do. And the fourth one is, you know the devil's at work when there is self-harm. All sin is self-harm. Because it means we are not living according to the way that God designed for us as people to live. And while, again, this is a dramatic example, there are times in our lives where we choose things, we, we choose activities that harm us because we don't trust God. We believe some lie. And I would say we often see this manifested even in our culture, in our day, at the most extreme with, with people who cut or starve themselves or people who have suicidal thoughts, suicidal tendencies. If you are someone who struggles with self-harm, if the enemy has attacked you and harassed you and wanted you to think that you are somehow not valuable or you should hurt yourself or you should end your life, I want to speak to you the words of God that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are treasured, you are loved by God. And every time that the enemy has whispered in your ears and lied to you that you should hurt yourself. You need to remember that Satan hates the image of God. You are created in the image of God. Satan is wanting to deface the image of God. And I would encourage you to not suffer alone. Don't give place to isolation. Please let your Christian brothers and sisters come around you, love you, care for you, pray for you, support you. You know what? If it's serious enough, they may even take you to the doctor, and that's an okay thing because we believe in medicine as well as the power of the Spirit of God. Amen? And you might need some time in the hospital to recover from whatever's going on. But I just say that. I want you to hear me. I want you to hear me. I want you to hear the tenderness in my voice because some of you are locked up and battling against the enemy and you're too ashamed to admit it to somebody. And I want you to know there's hope. I want you to know that there's love. Your Christian brothers and sisters, your pastors would love to pray with you and would love to stand with you. And I want you to see all four of these as indicators that the enemy is at work. Isolation, wrong thinking, false sense of strength, and self-harm. But you know what's even better than seeing the power of the enemy? 
seeing the power of Jesus. Let's pick back up in verse 6 here. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I would just like to pause for one moment and point out that at this moment in time, the demons have a better understanding of who Jesus is than many of the people who are following Jesus and listening to him teach. Okay? Just because you know a lot about Jesus doesn't mean you know Jesus. The demons have better theology than probably all of us do. But they do not worship him as God. They do not submit to him as Lord. They do not love him, trust him, and follow him. There is a difference between knowing about God and having saving faith in Jesus Christ. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Literally, the demon says, swear to God that you won't torture us. That is literally what they say. I adjure you is a fancy way to say, swear to God that you will not torture us. Why? Because Satan and demons know what's about to go down. And when they see Jesus, they know that their doom is certain. They think maybe this is the day of judgment. For he was saying... Jesus was already dealing with the spirit. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion is a unit in the Roman military that was about 5,000 soldiers. So it is possible that there are as many as 5,000 demons present with this one man. It's possible that the demon was lying and bragging uh, because demons are liars, but probably not because, again, this was Jesus and he would have known. So... My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Why? Because the enemy doesn't like to ever give up ground that he's taken. Don't send us out of the country. Now, here's where the story gets really fascinating. This is the fun part. You ready? Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and the demons begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. And so he gave them permission. Jesus gave them permission. That's a weird thing, right? Hey, can we go in those pigs? Yeah, go for it. Knock yourselves out. And the unclean spirits came out, entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000. That's a lot of pigs. That's a lot of wasted bacon. About 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Weird. Okay? Like, just so you know, the reason why Mark put it in the story is because it was weird to them too, right? I, I, my experience with pigs is basically limited to about five or six of them at a time at a petting zoo with my daughters, right? If you can imagine what 2,000 squealing, running, demon-possessed pigs must have been like, uh, you know, knock yourselves out. Use your imagination. That is a scene. That is a scene. That is quite the, the moment. You think your kids throwing a fit at Target is embarrassing. 2,000 pigs full of demons rushing and stampeding down into the ocean. This is crazy. Now, when you read scholars and you read commentators, everyone always asks the question, what's the deal with the pigs? Like, why the pigs? Why did the demons ask to go into the pigs? And my best answer is, I don't know. My second best answer is, after studying all week long, nobody really knows, but I'm going to give you my best attempt, okay? I have four points. These are my opinion, okay? So take them with a grain of salt. If they're helpful, great. Maybe they're totally nonsense and you can just let them be. But I want to give you at least what I believe is happening here, why Jesus allowed the demons to go into the pigs. The first thing is this. It was an object lesson. 
It was a dramatic pantomime, a puppet show, if you will, to demonstrate the pigs were unclean. Remember, according to the Old Testament law, pigs were an unclean animal. And Jesus is demonstrating that the demons, too, are unclean. You don't mess with them. They're not to be trifled with. Second, it's proof of a genuine deliverance, okay? 2,000 screaming demon-possessed pigs makes quite a scene. And the contrast between what that man must have been suffering and what the pigs were going through is just absolute proof that something miraculous really took place. The third thing, this is, again, my opinion, I believe it demonstrates that Satan is a destroyer. I believe in my, my reading this week, it was Spurgeon who said that it just goes to show that Satan regards a pig and a man as the same. He cares for people about as much as he cares for a pig, and he's willing to destroy both. Now, Satan doesn't love you. Satan doesn't care for you. Satan is a destroyer. And number four, and this one I think is the most clear from the text, is it's to reveal the people's hearts. It's to reveal the people's hearts because we're now going to see a variety of different responses. Picking back up in verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country. Yeah, like no kidding, right? They ran and said, hey, you guys will not believe what just happened. So the people came out to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man. I love this. The one who had the... Now remember, remember last week when we were studying about the storm and it said that they were really afraid of the storm and then Jesus stands up, rebukes the storm. It says they were more afraid. They were terrified. Watch what happens here. They came to Jesus, saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were what, church? They were afraid. Jesus, we could deal with crazy, naked, bleeding demon guy living in the tombs, but you really scare us. Jesus, we at least had a category of how to deal with this demonized guy, but you are, you're in a whole different level, Jesus. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. You know, Jesus, you're really disrupting things. We had a good system going. Sure, it wasn't perfect. That guy freaked us out, but Jesus, you're really freaking us out. Their hearts turned cold to Jesus. Everyone was amazed. Everyone was shocked. This is fantastic. This is amazing. This is shocking. But these people's hearts did not turn towards Jesus in worship and love. It says they begged him, begged him to depart from the region. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, this is, this is crazy. Jesus goes, okay, and he gets into the boat. Think about this. Think about this. Jesus went in the boat, went across the sea, braved the storm, landed, met the demon guy, heals him, gets kicked out, leaves, goes right back across. This whole trip, this whole venture was for one man. That's how good our Messiah is. That's how good our Redeemer is. Amen? Jesus got back in the boat, and as he was doing so, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, there's that word again, begged him that he might be with him. You know why? He met Jesus. He didn't just want what Jesus could do. He wanted Jesus. He didn't just want the effects of Jesus. He wanted Jesus himself. He begged that he might be with him. And Jesus didn't permit him, but he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone 
marveled. He becomes the first missionary to this Gentile region. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to have you come with me like that. I want you to go and tell people. Think about this. The reaction, the response. Everybody was amazed. Some people rejected Jesus. Says, we can't deal with your power. We can't deal with what it is that you do. But the man who had been healed said, I want to be with you, Jesus. I don't just want what you can do. I want relationship with you. Let me close with this thought. Is there something more happening here? Is this just a, a good story about Jesus freeing a man from bondage, demonic bondage? Or is there something else happening here? I want you to think of what we know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that Jesus came on a rescue mission to deliver men and women, sinners like you and I, out of captivity, out of bondage to Satan and his kingdom, right? The Bible would teach that apart from Jesus, the world lies under the captivity of Satan and, and all are held prisoner by him, but Jesus is the rescuer. Jesus is the redeemer who has come to set the captives free. It says in Peter that he's come to transfer us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. How does Jesus do that? What is the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of the world? It's the cross, it's the cross of Jesus Christ. And it struck me this week, and it, 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 it brought me to tears this week as I was studying, because, listen, on the cross of Jesus Christ, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he too is outside of the city. On the cross, Jesus too was stripped naked of his clothes. On the cross, Jesus too was beaten and whipped and cut with rocks that the Roman soldiers would have tied into the ends of the cat of nine tails as they whipped his flesh. So Jesus too was bleeding from rocks. And Jesus too was shouting out things that people didn't understand. Listen, on the cross, Jesus takes the place of the demoniac. On the cross, Jesus says to Satan, do your worst. Take it out on me. And in that moment, what looked like the greatest defeat was actually Jesus' triumph because in that moment, Jesus conquered Satan and sin and death once and for all. The, the book of Colossians tells us that on the cross, he triumphed over the ruling authorities, putting them to open shame. It wasn't like he just barely eked out a victory. It's that he humiliated the forces of darkness. That's all you got, Jesus says. Do your worst. Because though you kill me, I'm going to rise again on the third day, proving that I am God and I have all of the authority and I am the true king of the world and your false kingdom is coming soon to an end. But as if that wasn't enough, when Jesus is there with the, the demoniac, says they came and they found the demoniac clothed and in his right mind. The Bible would say that apart from Christ, we are Naked, we're impoverished. But the Bible says that when we trust in Jesus, he clothes us with a robe of his righteousness. Christian, do you know that you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus? That when God looks at you, he sees you as though you were as perfect and spotless as Christ himself? And did you know that in Jesus, when you become a Christian, you have the mind of Christ, that you have been given the right mind? You're no longer subject to futile thinking. You're no longer subject to the lies of the enemy, but you 
have the mind of Christ. Jesus on the cross takes the place of the demoniac so that men and women like us who are subject to the slavery of the enemy could be made right. That's some good news, church. That's some really good news. It means this. It means if you are not a Christian, the invitation today is to walk out of your allegiance with, your alliance with the false ruler of this world. I'm not trying to insult you, but I need you to know that you have been lied to and you've been blinded by the ruler of this age, by Satan, by the God of this world, and you think you're free, but you're not. And only in Christ Jesus is found true freedom, and there's a wide open invitation. Accept him as Savior. Leave the kingdom of darkness. Come to know the Savior. For those of you who are Christians, the question to you is this. Where might the enemy be attacking you? Where might the enemy be lying to you? Where, you? where might you be living as though you were still under the kingdom of darkness and you're not living according to the new kingdom? You're not living according to the fact that you've been clothed and you have the mind of Christ. So I invite you to assess. I invite you to check your heart and see where it is that God wants you to walk in freedom. I'm going to call us all to a time of response now. The way we're going to respond is a couple of ways. The first way we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and, and our offerings. And so I'd like to invite the financial stewards to come forward now if they would and begin to collect. If you are a guest or a visitor with us, you're under no obligation to give. You're welcome to if you would like. But we give because God has given us his very best. And so we give as an act of worship to him. And while they are collecting the offering, I'm going to throw a few community group discussion questions up on the screen so you can know uh, maybe some direction for your conversations this week, okay? Questions like, why do we need to be aware about Satan and his schemes? Or how have you experienced or currently are experiencing the attack of the enemy? Maybe isolation or wrong thinking or a false sense of strength or even a desire towards self-harm. How does the power of Jesus help us through spiritual attack? And then even more importantly, how does the gospel of Jesus free us, heal us, and, and give us a right mind? And then here's my request. I'd, I'd love to request this of you as individuals and community groups. Would you take extra time and pray against the plans and against the schemes of the enemy? Would you do that this week? Take some extra time to pray. We're also going to respond through the celebration of the Lord's table, through the celebration of communion. Communion is for Christians. If you are a Christian, even if you're a guest or a visitor, you're welcome to join us at the table. If you're not a Christian, you're welcome to become a Christian today and celebrate communion for the first time. I will say this. Today, as we celebrate communion, as we celebrate the Lord's table, I invite you to celebrate victoriously, okay? Is that a good churchy enough word I can use here? Okay, like, I want you to remember when you take the bread and you dip it in the cup that it is at the cross of Jesus that your victory was won. Satan was defeated and Jesus triumphed over him in the cross. And so like when you come forward, like I want you like, like really dip it, like dip it good this week because we need to celebrate victoriously. Jesus is alive. He triumphed over Satan and, and sin and death. Amen. And we're going to sing and we're going to rejoice. And I want you to sing triumphantly. I want you to sing victoriously because we're free. Because Jesus is alive, the tomb is empty, and Satan's head has been crushed, and his doom is certain. Even though he likes to still kick and fight and scream sometimes, we know that Jesus has won the ultimate victory, and our victory is assured because of him. Amen? And so I invite you to stand if you would. I'm going to pray. All of the songs that we're going to be singing speak of our, of our victory in Jesus and how he is the one true God, and, and we can have assurance in him. And so I just encourage you to sing loudly, celebrate communion joyfully today. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to respond. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for allowing us to see the truth of your word that 
Satan is defeated. Though he is a roaring lion, though he is an enemy, he is a defeated enemy. And so, God, I pray right now as we sing and as we celebrate and as we take communion, I pray that we would do so with a heart of joy and a heart of gratitude, knowing that our king has won the ultimate victory, that we who were under the domain of darkness have been transferred into the kingdom of light, and we once did not have Christ's righteousness, but now we have his robes of righteousness and we have a right mind before him. We pray all of these things in Jesus' good name. And everybody said, amen.